Welcome everybody to the 10th episode of Naples Ultra. I'm your host, Spencer Downing. And we're finally in double digits here. And in honor of that fact, I thought I'd do a little something special for this episode. This episode, I'm breaking the format. And if you've been following me on Facebook or Twitter, you'll know exactly what's coming this week. And it's something I'm hugely excited for. Given the fact it's our 10th episode, I thought we'd do a top 10. And who knows, maybe if this goes well, we'll do top 10s every 10th episode. Every episode ending in a zero. With that being said, this week we're going to be doing the top 10 armies of all time. I figured, coming right off the heels of our Sun Tzu episode, that top 10 armies would make the most sense. And this is a podcast I've always wanted somebody to do, not necessarily myself. I remember a long time ago, I interviewed podcaster Dan Carlin, and in that interview, I asked him to do a top 10 greatest armies episode. Unfortunately, he hasn't done it quite yet. So I thought, perhaps, that if no one else was going to do it, well, then I would do it. So, I drafted a list and checked it twice, so I think it's a pretty good list. It mixes it up between controversial choices as well as standard choices that you would expect to be on a list of the top 10 armies of all time. As a military history superfan, I had to make some pretty tough choices, but I think that everybody here gets their historical due as much as you can within a measly 10 numbers. Ultimately though, this list isn't going to make everybody happy. But hopefully, we'll have some interesting discussions and debates about it when everything's said and done. But let me take some time to talk about the criteria in which I used to draft my top 10 armies of all time list. I took into account a variety of different factors, but the top ones would be efficiency. That is how well these armies were able to accomplish their goals. How quickly were they able to achieve decisive victories? As well, how would they cope with a loss if confronted with one? The next major factor is, of course, the destructive capability of that army. How quickly was that army able to subjugate and conquer peoples? How easily could they inspire fear and terror within their enemies? The last major factor I would put here is their historical resume, if you will. What they were able to accomplish in the time that they existed. Did they beat multiple enemies? Did they beat just one enemy that may be very powerful? Did they fight enemies that were relatively the same strength as their army? Or were they fighting weaker forces that led to victory far easier? What I mean to say here is that something that could damage an army's credibility in the standings might be if they had created a great empire with their army, but they were primarily facing far weaker adversaries while creating it. Such an army would get less consideration than one who was fighting opponents equal or better than their current standing. And of course, as with any top 10 list, ultimately there has to be a little bit of arbitrary picking and choosing, especially when you're trying to decide which army is going to get the 6th or 7th place. Before we get into it though, I want to cover a few minor aspects of the list. 
First, I tried to choose an army of a particular era, if that empire or country lived for quite an extended period of time. I didn't want to put the entire army on the list throughout its existence. Instead, I would pick a period in time in which that army was the best. As well, we're talking about the army in its entirety. When I mentioned I was doing this topic for the podcast, I had a lot of people message me with suggestions, and some of those suggestions were incredibly granular. So I would get messages like, I think the Duke of Wellington's 7th Army, 5th Division, 3rd Brigade should get on the list. That's not what we're here to do. Instead, if that army were to make it the list, it would be the British Army from the period of, say, 1800 to 1815. Perhaps one day we will have a list where we can go more granular like that. Perhaps we can have a list of the top 10 greatest generals of all time, and that will give us the ability to zoom in and focus on very specific elements within that army. This time, however, we're looking at things with a larger frame of reference in mind. The last thing I would like to try and mention is that I tried to keep it to one army per country. I didn't want to have a list overwhelmed with German armies or anything like that, although we probably could do such a list if we wanted to. That's not what I wanted, however. I wanted a list that would look at a variety of different armies across both space and time. With that, we are at the end of our introduction. So, I would like to ask you to please join me as we go and explore the top 10 armies of all time. Number 10. I know that number 10 is going to already wade into some controversy, as when discussing anything that surrounds our modern lives and the political nature of our modern lives, it's bound to get controversial. But starting off our list today, we have at number 10, we have the military of the United States of America, present day. And this is controversial because I already see two arguments formulating in completely different camps. The first type is going to argue, why the heck is it at number 10? The United States military is the most destructive and powerful army that has ever existed in the history of mankind. It should be way higher than number 10. And other people are going to argue that it doesn't deserve a spot on this list at all. And they'll argue that it shouldn't be on the list through the lens of modern, current, ongoing conflicts. Or they'll argue that it's too soon. That we should leave off modern day armies because we simply don't grasp the current historical context surrounding them. And that's a fair point. And that goes into why it's only ranked at number 10. But... The list name is Top 10 Armies of All Time, not Top 10 Armies minus the past 50 some odd years. But let's talk about the American military and talk about why it's on the list and why it's at the spot that it is. And hopefully I'll be able to address both sides simultaneously. So why is the modern American army one of the top 10 best armies of all time? There are, in my mind, two reasons why it makes the list. The first reason is that part of our criteria 
is the destructive capability of said army. And without a doubt, the destructive capability of the United States Army is the largest in the history of the world. The United States Army currently has the most sophisticated weapons, the most advanced technology. It operates in every single continent on the globe, and in our current day, hasn't anyone who could even remotely compare to the power of the United States military. Currently, the United States spends almost as much as the rest of the world combined on its military forces. And for a lot of talk about how Russia or China is a potential threat to the United States, all things being equal, the United States could crush with ease any of its modern counterparts. Russia or China certainly doesn't have the capability to invade the United States. However, the United States has the capability to invade its modern counterparts. Whether or not they would be successful in said invasion is, at this point, a purely hypothetical discussion. But we'll get back to that later. So that's the first reason the United States Army is on this list. It's sheer destructive capability. And the second reason I put this army on the list is because the United States redefined modern military training in a way that would have incredible effects on the battlefield. And the way America has redefined military training is such a revolution that it's on par with some of the most powerful military inventions of all time. What am I talking about here? Well, during the war in Vietnam, America completely changed the way it trains its soldiers using advanced and sophisticated psychological techniques America was able to train its soldiers to pull the trigger without hesitation and thus increase the firing rate of its army by a factor of two. Let me break this down a little bit. If any of you haven't had the chance to read Lieutenant Dave Grossman's excellent book on killing, I would encourage you all to go and read it. In the book, Lieutenant Grossman identifies the firing rates of previous militaries through a number of different analyses, such as examining the weapons which had been fired after a battle, or using mathematics to mathematically calculate how effective a block of Napoleonic-style infantry would be in a fight, historians have been able to ascertain that the number of soldiers in any given battle previous to Vietnam who would actually fire their weapons was at a rate of about 30 to 50%. For example, guns found in Civil War battles after the fact would sometimes have upwards of a dozen cartridges loaded into them. So there is a healthy proportion of soldiers on the battlefield who wouldn't fire, but in order to make sure they looked like they were actually doing something, would just sit there and continually reload their gun. Oftentimes, when soldiers would actually fire, they would fire in ways that were ineffective. For example, they would fire over their enemies' heads, hopefully forcing them to retreat without actually having to kill anybody, because killing another human being is an incredibly psychologically damaging experience. This was something that was realized actually by the Prussian military back in the time of muskets and gunpowder. They asked a Prussian regiment to fire at a piece of wood that was six feet tall 
and 200 feet wide, roughly representing an advancing block of infantry, to see what the effective fire looked like. Long story short, if soldiers were firing in the same manner that these Prussian soldiers fired at this make-believe target, they would be killing people exponentially faster than the actual kill rates on these battlefields, which was about one every minute. Seeing that soldiers weren't firing at the rates or as effectively as they would be if they were just firing at inanimate objects, American military minds set about redefining the way in which their soldiers would be trained. And using behavioral psychologist techniques, they would be able to increase the firing rate from about 30 to 50% to 90%. They would do things like make the targets they were shooting at look like human beings, even so far as going to have packs of red paint or some other blood substitute tied to these targets. So when they would shoot, a spray of red would burst forth. What effect this would have is that it would override the soldier's instinct not to shoot another human being, that the trained conditioning would take over and American soldiers would fire the trigger before even thinking about it. This would have a devastating effect as the Americans entering Vietnam were far more effective in combat than the Viet Cong. Although they ultimately lost the war, in actual firefight engagements, America would come out universally on top. As well, you'll see Americans export this type of training to rebel groups they might be supporting during the Cold War. And American-trained rebel groups under these new types of techniques would be sometimes twice as effective as their non-American-trained counterparts. It would also have a devastating impact on the psychology of the soldier, as Lieutenant Grossman describes, that these soldiers were effectively trained to become killers of the highest order, yet never given the support coming home from Vietnam to reintegrate from being a killer back to a normal, productive citizen. Anyway, this training pioneered by the American forces would have an incredible effect on the battlefields of the future, allowing armies to become magnitudes more effective than they have been in previous times. And to me, that ensures you deserve a spot as one of the top 10 armies of all time. And the reason why I didn't put America higher than number 10 is because they really lack the historical resume. And many of the modern conflicts that America has been involved with haven't shown off their efficiency as a fighting force. Consider that in comparison to some of the armies we will be talking about, America hasn't really had that existential struggle against an invading force that was equal or greater than their own capabilities. And while the Cold War, I think, was definitely an existential struggle, not just for America, but for mankind, because it ultimately wasn't a conflict with two superpowers duking it out one-on-one -on, -one on the battlefield, it leaves a large gap in America's historical resume. Ultimately, leading me to conclude that while America definitely is one of the top 10 armies of all time, because of that lack of historical background, it only gets the number 10 spot. That is to say, it does have room to grow. So, 100 years from now, we'll reconvene and remake the list. 
and see how things have changed. For our number 9 pick, we're going to move backwards in time and eastwards in geography. And the number 9 pick on our list is the army of the Ottoman Empire. And of course, we have to pick which period within the long history of the Ottoman Empire. Historians break up the history of the Ottoman army into three different distinct periods. There's the Ottoman army in the period before they conquer Constantinople. There's the Ottoman army in the period after the conquest of Constantinople. And then lastly, there's the modern Ottoman army. And this was the period from around the 1700s all the way to the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire in the early 20th century. For our purposes, the official number nine spot goes to the classical Ottoman army. And this was the Ottoman army that existed in the period after they conquered Constantinople, roughly stretching from 1451 to 1600. And it would be during this period that the Ottoman army would reach its peak in efficiency, as well as the empire would reach its peak in landmass. It would be in this period that Medmed II would lead the Ottoman army to conquer Constantinople. As well, this period contains the rule of Suleiman the Magnificent, an Ottoman sultan who vastly expanded the territories of the Ottoman Empire. So what exactly does an Ottoman army of this time look like? And the Ottoman army of this time is, I think, very interesting because it has a very unique composition of forces, something that no other army since this time has quite been able to master. The core of the Ottoman Empire in this time was the very famous Janissaries. And these Janissaries were generally elite units that were comprised of young Christian slave boys. So what they would do is they'd take these young slaves and essentially cordon them off from the rest of the world and do nothing but train them in the ways of war. And by the time these boys had reached adulthood, they were fanatical supporters of the Ottoman Sultan, as well as expert warriors. Initially, these soldiers would carry bows and arrows into battle, and they were expert archers. However, they very quickly adopted gunpowder weapons in their early stages and became quite proficient with them. So proficient with these gunpowder weapons that it's a huge reason as to why they were propelled into the status of empire. So anyway, these Janissaries are the core of the Ottoman army of this period. And they would also represent the bodyguards of the Sultan as well. They could do multiple different tasks. For example, later in the classical period, they would become proficient as engineers and sappers. And this allowed the Ottoman army to become extremely proficient at siege warfare. So beyond these Janissaries, the Ottoman Empire would also have a core of irregular volunteer units. And these units would supplement the Ottoman infantry, as well as doing other important tasks like scouting and reconnaissance. As well, they would operate the artillery of the Ottoman Empire. But we'll get to that later. 
The second pillar of this Ottoman army was the cavalry, and the Turkish people are actually a former nomadic tribe along the lines of the Mongolians or the Huns. So the Turkish people were proficient cavalrymen, but above and beyond that, they were proficient cavalry archers. And European armies always had an extreme amount of difficulty dealing with cavalry archers from these nomadic steppe tribes, so you can imagine they were a very effective component of the Ottoman army. As well, on top of these cavalry archers, the Ottomans would have heavily armored cavalry that filled the purpose of delivering devastating charges to their opponents, and they had even lighter, more irregular cavalry that would be used, again, for scouting and disrupting enemy operations. The last pillar of this Ottoman army is their artillery, and the Ottomans really pioneered the use of artillery on the modern battlefield. They were the first to use it with any type of efficiency, and these pieces of Ottoman artillery are really quite extraordinary. They are these massive, incredible cannons, and I encourage everyone to go and Google the Great Turkish Bombard and see what these cannons looked like. Rarely used in actual combat, these cannons were primarily used for siege warfare because it would take a tremendous amount of effort to get them into position, assemble them, and load them. In fact, they could only be fired up to seven times a day. But that doesn't matter because they only needed to fire it a couple times to destroy whatever fortification you were hiding behind. So imagine you're a European nation of this time. You don't have gunpowder integrated into your army. Your infantry are not exactly the best trained in the world. And your cavalry probably isn't that great either. Then all of a sudden, this new army, this new Ottoman army, explodes onto the scene and they're using an extremely sophisticated combination of weapons to destroy your neighbors. And their army is made up at its core of these elite soldiers that have trained their entire lives for battles using weapons that are more sophisticated than yours. They have these excellent cavalry archers who under the best of conditions you can't really handle, and then you top it off with these gigantic cannons that can destroy the castles you've been using to defend yourselves against these types of steppe nomads for centuries. Yeah, I'd be a little scared too. And this triple threat, sort of represented by the Ottoman army, was very effective. They, in very quick order, overran the Balkans, as well as all of North Africa, and taking large chunks of the Middle East as well. Ottoman expansionism was eventually curbed at the Siege of Vienna, and part of that was because Europeans had started adopting the technology and techniques that the Ottomans introduced. So, in a way, I personally believe that the Ottoman army forced the European countries to modernize their military tactics in response so, to put a little footnote here about the Ottoman Empire, one of the cool things about this particular army is that it was the first paid standing army since the Roman Empire. So, their soldiers were actually paid salaries, which was generally not the case of armies of this time. As well, the Ottoman Empire was very effective in its rule and administration. For example, the Ottoman Empire 
own both Palestine and the Balkans, two areas that we associate with extreme conflict in our modern minds. Yet the Ottoman Empire was able to rule over these areas peacefully for centuries. And the last thing I want to say about the Ottoman Empire is that I mark their rise as a definite shift in history, as the end of the medieval era and the beginning of gunpowder warfare. So for its extremely sophisticated use of multiple different weapon systems and the introduction of the first effective gunpowder units into their military, I think the Ottoman Empire definitely deserves this spot as the ninth top army of all time. We all knew a World War II army was going to make it onto this list at some point. The question is, however, which army goes on the list? And it's certainly not an easy choice, because there are so many great armies to pick from during this time period. I mean, there's the Americans, the British, the Russians, the Japanese... And to decide which one was going to go on the list, I had to ask myself, what am I taking into account as the best army? Because during this time period, there was really three branches. There was the army, the air force, and the navy. Was I going to take all of these branches together? Was I going to take just some of them? Ultimately, I decided I would include both land forces and air forces in my decision making and I would have to leave out navies. We were doing the top 10 best armies of all time, not the top 10 best navies of all time. And this is something we'll come back to a little bit later in the podcast. But for now, I'm sure you're all eager to know which army gets the number 8 spot. And after much deliberation, I have decided to award that spot to the Soviet army from 1942 to 1945 and I know this is going to be another controversial choice because I feel most people when deciding which army is going to get the number one spot in World War II are going to land either on the German side or potentially the American side. When it comes to top 10 armies of all time I firmly believe that the German army of World War II does not fall into that category. This is because the German army of World War II, while being able to hit exceptionally hard, did not have a lot of staying power, especially if that first hit didn't deliver a decisive blow. But don't worry, the Germans will certainly get their due on this list. When it comes to the American army, because I wasn't including navies so much, it diminished its appeal as well I believe the current modern-day army of the United States is far superior than its World War II counterpart. With that being said, the Soviet army that went into the Battle of Stalingrad and eventually ended up conquering Berlin certainly deserves to be on this list. And let me tell you why. The first reason is the incredible scale in which everything was done militarily in the Soviet Union. First off, 
the entirety of the Eastern Front stretched on for more than 1,600 kilometers, or roughly 1,000 miles. To give you a reference, that's about the distance from Seattle to Los Angeles. Now, imagine people fighting all along, up and down that length, and all the difficulties that entails. How do you supply the soldiers fighting there? How do you coordinate attacks with millions upon millions of people swirling around simultaneously? It's an incredible task of logistics and coordination. This was a task that on the Allied side, nobody could even come close to having to tackle. But if you want to get a real sense of scale in which the Soviet army undertook warfare, you have to look at Operation Bagration. And Operation Bagration was a Soviet offensive from June 22nd to August 19th, 1944. Listen to the scale of this operation. This operation included 1.7 million Soviet personnel, 5,000 tanks, 8,000 aircraft, 33,000 artillery pieces and mortars, all coordinated on a front which dwarfed the size and scale of the D-Day landings. Not to mention Operation Bagration succeeded in all its goals resoundingly, completely crushing German Army Group Center to the point in which it ceased to be a fighting force at all. Not only that, the Russians would gain footholds in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Poland, as well as the Prussian half of Germany. It completely broke the backs of the German fighting forces. They would have to send thousands of men over to the Eastern Front from the Western Front in order to stabilize it, and thus lessen the resistance the Allies would find while advancing into France. Operation Bagration was the final nail in the coffin for Germany. After this point, all Germany could do was slowly bleed to death. Operation Bagration is arguably the largest military endeavor ever taken in human history. And that, to me, sounds like something only one of the top armies of all time could do. But the scale of the Soviet army is not the only reason, I believe, it should be on the list. After 1942, it was led extraordinarily well. The fact is that the general staff of both the Allies and Germany pale in comparison to the Soviet army staff of this period sporting what are unquestionably the best generals of World War II, the Soviet army, once it learned the art of modern warfare, would become unstoppable. And I know what a lot of people will say, but listen, the Soviet army got its ass handed to it in 1941 and the early parts of 1942. And that is absolutely the case. The Soviet army was woefully ill-prepared for modern warfare. Most people believed that the Soviet Union would fall very quickly to the German army. And the fact that it didn't, I think, is really a testament to that army. That despite its enormous setbacks, it was able to persevere, learn, grow, and ultimately conquer. It's true, the Germans started writing the rule book on modern warfare, but the Russians would take it and finish it as well as perfect it. So I think after you take all these variables into account, as well as include the fact that if you were to just remove the Eastern Front of World War II and separate it 
as its own isolated war, it becomes the largest war in human history all on its own. And I think the winner in the largest war in human history definitely deserves a spot as one of the top armies of all time. For our number 7 pick, we're going to go back to a time when war was a little bit more refined than we're used to. Back to a time when men wore brightly colored uniforms, stood a hundred yards away from one another, and proceeded to shoot each other in the face. And if you know about this period in time and this style of warfare, then you know that there's one particular army that stands above all the rest. When I talk about muskets and cannons and general warfare in the early 19th century, I'm sure one particular person comes immediately to mind, and that is Napoleon. It will be his ability to shake up the tactics of warfare of this era, along with the military skill and prowess of French soldiers, that will cement the Napoleonic French army of 1800 to 1850 as the seventh top army of all time. So what exactly was it that made Napoleon's army so special? Well, there's two factors, I think, that led to Napoleon's success in a tactical sense on the battlefield, as well as another two that led to his grand strategic success in the larger picture of warfare. The first aspect of his success, speed. We talked in our last podcast about how Sun Tzu wrote that speed is the essence of warfare, and he couldn't be more right. When you look back through history, you'll see that generals that acted with a sense of speed and decisiveness were among the best in the world, and Napoleon is no exception in that category. Another general, by the way, who amplified this speed and decisiveness was Roman general, politician, and eventual dictator, Julius Caesar. Anyway, back to Napoleon. One of the things that Napoleon pioneered that would eventually become a staple of warfare is dividing your forces into smaller units and then moving them independently to an objective. Most armies of this time would move in a giant cohesive unit towards their objective. This would make your army safe in the process of moving from point A to point B, which is one of the most opportune times to attack your army, but it would also make that army movement very slow. What Napoleon would do, on the other hand, is take his larger army, split it up maybe into three or four smaller segments, and then have them all meet up at a predestined position. Most generals wouldn't do this because it would make your army vulnerable. But Napoleon was a risk taker, and for the most part, his risks paid off because he would get to where he needed to be before his enemy. He'd be able to secure advantageous terrain and set up his cannons. And even if a small portion of his army managed to reach the destination before the enemy did, they would be able to secure that advantageous terrain and hold out until the rest of Napoleon's army 
would arrive. This also had the advantage of making his army quicker to respond to tactical changes. For example, Napoleon could easily send one of his armies in motion to maybe capture a strategic bridge and cut off the enemy's retreat. This type of movement of forces is something that Confederate generals actually used to great effect in the Civil War. Confederate generals were far more prone to break up their armies in this sort of Napoleonic way and have them advance towards their objective. It worked well until the Union was able to, by chance, find a classified Confederate document which documented the movement plans of the Confederate army, which is one of those great pivotal what-if moments in history, that what if the Union didn't find out about the Confederate battle plans? How would that have changed the outcome of the future? So besides speed, what else did Napoleon have on his side? The other answer is artillery. Napoleon started off his career as an artillery officer and was extremely adept at using artillery in battle. You can see Napoleon's reverence for artillery through quotes such as, God is on the side that has the best artillery, or artillery adds dignity to what otherwise would be a burly brawl. And while other powers of the time had these cannons, these artillery, they would use it in different ways. They would use it to constrain movement, to hold positions, while Napoleon would use it to kill enemy soldiers. One thing I should mention, when we talked in the segment about the American army, we talked about Lieutenant Grossman's book and how soldiers didn't have high rates of effective fire. There were exceptions to this rule. For example, snipers didn't have this type of barrier, as well as soldiers operating tanks or firing from naval guns, but as well as soldiers operating artillery. So this could be one of those unknown factors as to why artillery of the era was so effective, because it wasn't bogged down by this psychological barrier that prevented the regular infantry from firing their weapons effectively. Essentially, what this boils down to is the further away you are from killing your opponent, or the more intermediate steps in between that, the more likely you are to be effective in your task. So, Napoleon would use his speed to get his men into position along with his cannons, and then use those cannons to soften up the enemy as much as he could before he would send in his actual soldiers. And this mix was extremely effective, and it kept other European powers off balance for the entirety of the Napoleonic Wars. They just had so much trouble coming to grips with him. I can imagine it must have been exceedingly frustrating for his opponents at the time. The other two aspects that I alluded to earlier that helped Napoleon win in a grand strategic sense were his appeal to the French people as well as his national army. First off, in terms of his appeal, Napoleon represented this French greatness. Coming right off the heels of the French Revolution, Napoleon, in somewhat ironic ways, reflected the zeal and fervor of this new revolutionary France. French soldiers were willing to fight and die for Napoleon in ways that opposing soldiers would never do for their own sovereigns. French soldiers believed they were spreading the ideals of the revolution across Europe. And in many ways they did, because after Napoleon's time, 
many of the countries that he would occupy with his soldiers would undergo their own revolutions. And these revolutions had varying degrees of success. The second reason that Napoleon was so successful is that he was the first to truly use a national army. What exactly does this mean? Well, shortly after the French Revolution, all of these conservative monarchies in Europe sought to invade France and overthrow this new republic and reinstill the monarch. It looked pretty bad for the new republic because the powers arrayed against them were marching on France with the aim to overthrow the new government. The new government, in response, declared that it was every citizen's duty to fight for France and defend the new regime. So the entire country, in a way that hadn't been seen previously in history, rose up for the war effort and started making guns, artilleries. But most of all, poor people and lower class people were armed and sent to fight in the battlefields for France. Previously, before this time, most armies fought using either the elites in their society or mercenaries. And this was generally because the elites in society were the only ones who could actually afford weapons and afford the time to train with said weapons to go out and fight. With the advent of gunpowder, everything changed. Now, anybody could go pick up a gun and be easily trained in how to fire it and reload it. However, most of the absolute monarchs in Europe were not enthused about the idea of arming their lower classes with weapons. So instead, most of their armies were made up of small elite mercenary units. The new French Republic, on the other hand, theoretically had a government which represented every French citizen, not just a small elite few. So, the French Republic didn't have the same qualms about arming its citizens en masse. And all of a sudden, when these small elite armies invaded France, they were completely overwhelmed by mobs of French citizens who in some cases didn't even have any training. They just had guns and would completely overwhelm these smaller armies with their sheer numbers. Napoleon took this concept and extended it. He gave the lower masses the training they needed to be effective soldiers, as well, because he was so beloved by the French populace, he had no qualms either in arming the lower classes. As well, Napoleon represented a distinct change in attitude for warfare at the time. Napoleon was also more willing to send his soldiers off to die. In a famous quote, he said, You cannot stop me. I spend 30,000 lives a month. And at the time, this was shocking. So Napoleon had this powerful national army that he's willing to take risks with, but also willing to absorb casualties with. And that combined with his tactical prowess made him a very potent force on the battlefields of the early 19th century. So let me leave you with one point as to why I think the Napoleonic armies of France deserve to be on this list. It would take not one not two, not three, but seven different coalitions of combined European powers to come together to bring down Napoleon, finally. And for his seven coalitions, Napoleon will get the seventh spot on our top ten armies list of all time.
number six is probably one of those choices that isn't going to make it onto a lot of people's lists. But in my opinion, this army is probably the most underrated army of all time. They engaged in a series of incredible conquests that took the world at the time by storm and still has important ramifications for our modern world today. In fact, the army that we're going to talk about may have the longest lasting and most powerful impact on our modern world of all the armies that we're going to talk about today. They exploded shockingly from a region in the world that at the time nobody took seriously and in short order defeated two of the largest and most powerful empires of the day and after this engaged in some of the most rapid and expansive conquests of all time. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the armies of the Rashidun Caliphate, which existed from 632 to 661, and that's AD. What's amazing about the Rashidun Caliphate is that I never learned about the military conquests of this army until later in my life. I was interested in Middle Eastern history and how that ties into the problems of our present day. But going through school, I never learned about it. Going through university, I never learned about it. It wasn't until after my formal education that I learned about the Rashidun Caliphate. And I wonder if that's because of the extremely complicated geopolitical situation that surrounds us and modern Islam. But to understand Islam, you have to understand how it came to be. And it came to be a world force under the Rashidun Caliphate. So in the early stages of Islam, Muhammad gathers together a few supporters and then he fights a series of battles that consolidate his control around the Arab Peninsula, and that's modern-day Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman. After Muhammad died, he would be succeeded by one of his friends, a man by the name of Abu Bakr. And he didn't live very long, only three years before he would die, but under his tenure, he would consolidate Islamic control over Saudi Arabia, and then prosecute a war of expansion. And then, all of a sudden, these Islamic armies burst forth from the Arab Peninsula and expand both east against the Sassanid Empire in modern-day Persia, and then west against the Byzantine Empire, what is left over from the Eastern Roman Empire. And I can tell you, Neither of these two powers expected any serious threat to have ever emerged from the Arab Peninsula. The Romans would often joke that all that was needed to patrol the border between the Roman Empire and the Arab Peninsula was lions. So, the Romans, and later the Byzantines, were ill-prepared to deal with this new threat. In very short order, the Rashidun Caliphate would capture Iraq, the most prosperous of all the provinces of the Sassanid Empire, and then the Rashidun Caliphate would march west and face off against the Byzantine Empire in one of the most incredible battles of all time, the Battle of Yarmouk. In a battle that took place in what is modern-day Israel, the Romans, or the Byzantines, would match up against the Rashidun Caliphate. The Byzantine army brought with it, depending on what you believe in the sources, between 50,000 and 150,000 men, while the Rashidun Caliphate brought with it between twenty 
and 40,000 men. And the Rashidans were certainly outnumbered here to what ratio we sadly have no idea whether they were outnumbered by only 10,000 men or 100,000 men. We simply do not know. The Rashidans in this battle were led by a brilliant general by the name of Khalid ibn al-Walid. And Khalid's signature move as a general was his light cavalry. And exactly knowing when to insert his light cavalry into the battlefield and when to hold them back. He would use this light cavalry to great effect, supposedly crossing an impassable desert with his light cavalry earlier in his career and emerging to flank and defeat the enemy. On the other side of the battle, the Byzantines were led by a general by the name of Vehan, which I think is a great name. Vehan sets up his forces in four large infantry blocks, and then proceeds to advance on the smaller Rashidun force, hoping to overwhelm them with their larger numbers and heavier equipment. However, every time the Byzantines would assault the Rashidun Caliphate, they would be forced back. Supposedly, this is because the women of the Rashidun Caliphate were waiting in the sidelines, and then when they would see men retreating, they would physically berate them and sometimes throw stones at them until they would turn around and march back into the battlefield. One Muslim soldier apparently commented that it was easier to face the Romans than to face our own wives. So anyway, on the fifth day of the Byzantines assaulting the Rashidun Caliphate and the Rashidun's holding them back, Khalid finally saw his moment to insert his strategic light cavalry reserves and use them to flank the northernmost block of Byzantine infantry. And once that was over, the entire Byzantine line collapsed. And it ended with a decisive victory for the Rashidun Caliphate. After this, they would move in and quickly gobble up all the former Roman provinces that existed in what is modern-day Syria and northern Africa. They would then turn their sights on what remained of the Sassanid Empire and defeat them in a crushing battle called the Battle of Al-Qatizea, a battle which we frankly know very little about. All that we know is that the Rashidun Caliphate won a decisive victory. And while they weren't able to completely defeat the Byzantine Empire as they would hold on to their holdings in Europe and what is modern-day Turkey for another thousand years, they were able to completely defeat and annex the Sassanid Empire. So, all of a sudden, this new upstart army and religion had defeated two of the most powerful empires in very quick order and completely absorbed and annexed one of them into its new growing territories. After the Rashidid Caliphate, the Umayyad Caliphate would take its place and they would continue the policy of expansion, expanding further into North Africa and even going as far as to conquer Spain itself. There's supposedly a very famous battle in which Frankish knights were able to throw back this Islamic scouting force. And this battle is mythologized as sort of the decisive turning point of curbing Islamic expansion. So while they weren't able to move up into France, they very well could have. But I think the opposite is a little bit more interesting. For example... What if the Byzantines were able to force back the Rashidun forces? What if their wives were able to shame them into returning to the battlefield? What if instead the Byzantines had won that decisive victory? It could very well have been 
the nail in the coffin for Islam, or at least Islam would not spread to the extent in which it exists today. For example, when you look at a map of the territories owned by these early Islamic empires, virtually every single territory owned by them is now an Islamic country to this day. Up until that point, the dominant culture in what is modern-day Syria and northern Africa was Greco-Roman culture. Imagine how different our world would be today if that was still the case. And if you were a betting man of this time, this was probably the smart bet to have made. Instead, what happened is this upstart new army was able to defeat and conquer territories in a time frame and magnitude that are on par with Alexander the Great's conquests. And I don't think it's a far cry to say that the modern boundaries and geopolitical situations of the Middle East today were drawn in this critical time period. So when you look at what the Rashidun Caliphate was able to achieve with so little, I don't think there's any question that they deserve their number six spot on our top 10 armies of all time list. We're now at the halfway point. These bottom five on the list represent the best of the best. These are, without a doubt, the finest militaries to have ever existed in human history. And we'll start off this list with an army that I don't think anybody can question deserves to be here, and that is the Macedonian army of Alexander the Great. An army which existed from 336 to 323 BC. And Alexander the Great is one of those historical figures that you can't say anything more about him that hasn't already been said. Even in his own time period, the man was a legend beyond reproach. Ambitious Greeks and Romans would look up to Alexander the Great and measure their own accomplishments against his. They would go to Alexandria and visit Alexander the Great's tomb and would often lament the fact that while maybe I'm doing well personally, I'm never going to live up to this yardstick. Julius Caesar at one point was supposed to have broken down into tears over the fact that he had only accomplished a fraction of what Alexander the Great had accomplished. However, when his adopted son, Augustus, went to visit Alexander the Great's tomb, he probably had a different feeling. He probably thought, you know what? I'm doing pretty damn well for myself. But let's take some time to talk about Alexander the Great and that which he accomplished during his short reign on this planet. Alexander the Great, inheritor of the Macedonian kingdom from his father Philip, his father Philip, by the way, no slouch either, as he was able to take the small kingdom of Macedon and turn it into the dominant power in all of Greece as well. Philip had this amazing army that was handed down to Alexander. But Alexander improved on even that army. So Greek armies of this period would fight each other in blocks of what are called phalanxes. And essentially what these phalanxes were, were large groups of men 
shoved together with large shields and long spears in their hands. And then this hedgehog block formation would just advance on you with spears pointing out from every angle. They were extremely difficult to hit with bows and arrows because their large shields would protect themselves as well as the person next to them because they would overlap with one another. As well, soldiers in the phalanx would wear helmets and greaves on their legs so they would be protected literally from head to toe. So this army would just bear down on you and obliterate anything that was in front of it. It was an unstoppable steamroller of ancient warfare. However, if you were ever able to get behind the phalanx, then all bets were off because they couldn't easily maneuver this formation. Alexander inherited this phalanx type of army from his father, but he would change it up a little bit. He would lessen the armor slightly of those soldiers in the phalanx, but he would extend the length of their spears, sometimes doubling it. So while the typical spear before Alexander the Great might be 7 or even 10 feet, the typical spear under Alexander's army was almost 18 feet long. So this small change would allow the phalanx to become more mobile and also give it a longer reach. But what really set Alexander apart and what made his army so effective was the fact he was among the first generals to use combined forces. He added in a very strong cavalry component to his Macedonian army. These companion cavalry are some of the most renowned in the world. And this cavalry arm was something that previous Greek armies lacked severely. As well, he would incorporate archers and other light troops, something that was not frequently seen in other Greek armies of the time. Alexander was also extremely skilled at giving different segments of his army different missions. So he'd have different missions for the infantry, for the archers, for the cavalry, and all of these components would be working together to achieve victory. Alexander, to me, represents one of the first real examples of a general in history. He was one of the first men to conduct warfare, rather than just be an active participant in it. Alexander would take this army and use it to completely obliterate the massive Persian Empire next door. And in the span of less than 10 years, he would obliterate this Persian Empire and conquer virtually all of its territories, a massive territory that extended all the way from modern-day Turkey up to the borders of India and includes places like Egypt, Syria, and Mesopotamia. Alexander the Great's empire quickly became the largest empire of its day, and it was created in a tiny space of time, especially for ancient populations, where change was almost never rapid, and empires would come and go over the course of decades, not mere years. Alexander the Great also has the legacy of being completely undefeated in his life, despite the fact he would almost always be the first one to charge into battle and was wounded dozens of times because of his take-charge generalship. The ultimate tragedy in the Greek tragedy that is Alexander's life is the fact that he died a mere two years after 
acquiring his empire. And while on his deathbed, at the age of merely 32, dying of an illness to this day we still aren't exactly sure of, he would, when asked, say his empire would be left to the strongest. And immediately after his death, all Alexander's generals set to the task of proving they were the strongest. And ultimately, his empire would be divided up between three different spheres. The largest sphere was claimed by one of his generals, Seleucid. And the Seleucid Empire would extend from modern-day Turkey all the way across to the borders of India. The second sphere of influence was claimed by Ptolemy, who would actually take Alexander's body to Alexandria in Egypt and set up a long-running dynasty there. The final sphere was claimed by a guy named Antigonus One-Eye, and he would own the original starting Macedonian kingdom of Alexander the Great. So, unfortunately, we never really get to see what Alexander's empire would have been like if he had the time to realize it. As a young man who could have potentially lived another 30 years, considering what he accomplished in eight, it's unimaginable to think what he could accomplish given another 30. Would he conquer Rome? Would he move south? Would he continue to move eastwards? We'll never know. But it's fun to speculate about. The last thing I want to say about Alexander's legacy is that he didn't just have an aptitude for destruction. He had an aptitude for construction as well. Alexander would spread Greek art and culture across Asia as well as found innumerable cities, almost all of them with his name, all throughout the former Persian Empire. The most famous being, of course, the Egyptian city of Alexandria. And this helped to spread Greek art, philosophy, and learning on a global scale. I think there's no question that the army of Alexander the Great deserves a spot on this list. The only thing is, I'm sure people will tell me he deserves to be higher up. Regardless, though, Alexander the Great and his army are deserving of at least the number five spot in our top 10 armies of all time list. There's a reason why I've had so much fun doing this particular episode. I've had the chance to explore vast swaths of human history. And this next army will show just how far back we're going here. Our next army is the earliest example of an empire and all the military necessities to sustain that empire we have in human history. We started off this list with the most recent example of a military in the modern United States military. And now we're going back to the very first one. So I can't think of a larger cross-section of history than you could possibly get with this podcast. If my hints haven't given it away, the number four spot on this list is awarded to the Assyrian army. And some of you might not be familiar with the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians are a people that, for all intents and purposes, do not exist anymore. 
There are some people who will claim to have a Syrian background, but as a people, they've been folded into the multitudes of different ethnicities that have inhabited the region since that time period. Assyria itself is a region that roughly encompasses modern-day northern Iraq. The Assyrians themselves existed as a people and a kingdom from around the 25th century BC all the way to 1612 BC. So an enormous length of time. For our purposes, we're going to be putting the Assyrian army of what's called the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And this period stretches from 911 BC all the way to 605 BC. And at its height, this empire would encompass Egypt, all of Iraq, modern-day Iraq and Mesopotamia, all of what's modern-day Lebanon, Syria, and Israel. As well, they would own a fair chunk of what is now the Turkish Peninsula. Definitely not a large empire by the standards of some we've discussed, but for its time, it was enormous. The region itself that the Assyrians called their native homeland was not a particularly hospitable one. Tough to grow things there, not very fertile, as well as it doesn't have a lot of natural barriers. It's a very open area which allows people, especially in this time, to sort of come over and invade it easily. As well as it wasn't home to a lot of natural resources that were needed at the time. Now it's home to lots of very vital natural resources to our modern civilization, not so much 4,000 years ago. But people who grow up in these very inhospitable environments generally turn out to be extremely tough warriors. I mean, think about it. You can't farm, you don't have a lot of resources at your disposal, and you're under constant threat. What do you do? You work hard to hone in your defensive force, and then once you realize hey, our warriors defending our kingdom are really spectacular. Let's go out and take some of the resources that we don't have, but our neighbors do. Lo and behold, you have the ingredients for the world's first empire. Because that's exactly what they did, is they set out and started conquering their neighbors. The first to fall was the mighty civilization of Babylon, who on and off would be under the thumb of the Assyrian Empire. And Babylon itself, another incredibly ancient civilization, had what a lot of people compared to a relationship with Assyria similar to the relationship Greece had with Rome. In the sense that Babylon provided the culture and quote-unquote civilization to this empire, yet they always admired the military prowess of the Assyrians while the Assyrians brought the fantastic military to the table, yet copied a lot of Babylonian culture and incorporated it into their own empire. And the Assyrians were particularly brutal with their conquests. They organized very much a strategy of abject terror. I mean, just listen to one of these descriptions of a conquest from Assyrian king Ashurbanipal II. And I love all these Assyrian names, by the way. Anyway, Ashurbanipal wrote, Their men, young and old, I took prisoners. Some of them I cut off their feet and hands. Of others, I cut off their ears, noses, and lips. Of the young men's ears, I made a heap. Of the old men's heads, I made a minaret. 
a minaret, by the way, are those tall towers with sort of balconies protruding out that you see often attached to mosques nowadays. Anyway, continuing. I exposed their heads as a trophy in front of their city. The male children and the female children I burned in flames. The city I destroyed and was consumed with fire. So that's the kind of damage they would inflict during their conquests. And there's plenty more stories just as horrible, if not more horrible than that. There are stories of people's bodies being used as mortar, sort of, to build walls out of. Or people who had towers built around them that they would be trapped within and slowly starve to death. And the Assyrians would create reliefs, and these are stone posters almost, that carve out depictions of their victories and conquests. So as a foreign diplomat going to visit Ashurbanipal II, you'd go in and you'd see the nice heap of ears, the heads posted on the walls, and then you'd get inside and right in front of you, you'd see a stone poster almost of the heaps of ears and the heads in front of the gate just to remind you of the fact that, yeah, this is me, I'm a badass, you better do what I say or your ears are going to join that heap real soon. It's no wonder, then, that the Assyrians are often compared to the biblical version of Nazis, because them and their atrocities play a significant role in the Old Testament. The army itself was made up of strong, well-equipped, highly trained infantry, and the Assyrians also are among the first to incorporate a cavalry arm into their military. They would also use chariots upon occasion, as well as archers. What's really striking about the Assyrian army is that, all told in their empire, they would have a standing army of between 150,000 to 200,000 men. And in the field itself, they would be able to easily field a force of 50,000 soldiers. And when you compare it to armies like the Persian Empire that would come after it, or the Roman Empire that would come after that, it doesn't seem like such a large number. But to put this in perspective, 50,000 people is less than half of the combined armies on both sides at the Battle of Hastings. And this 50,000 number would routinely dwarf the size of the armies that medieval European states could muster. So their logistical capability, their capability to field soldiers, was superior to the ability of Europeans almost 2,000 years later. But the real reason why I'm putting Assyria on this list, and so high on this list, is because they were the blueprint for every single ancient army that came after it. All empires owe something to the Assyrians. If you'll forgive this rather outside-the-box metaphor, the Assyrians did for military history what the Beatles did for rock and roll. They popularized it and got the ball rolling. So, just as if you were to do a list of the top 10 rock bands of all time, you definitely couldn't get away with excluding the Beatles. And for our sake here, we definitely can't get away with excluding the Assyrian Empire.
earlier, we talked about what is, in my opinion, the most underrated army of all time. Consider this next pick as the second most underrated army of all time. And it's very strange that this country, at least in my opinion, has what is one of the most overrated armies of all time and one of the most underrated armies of all time in a very short historical time span. What army is that? Well, it might shock you, and I'm really tempted to write a real clickbaity article promoting this particular podcast. The top 10 armies of all time. Number 3 will shock you. It's the German army of World War One. And let me take some time not only to explain why I chose the German army of World War One over the German army of World War Two, but also why this army deserves to be on the list and so high up on the list. Well, the main reason in my mind is that the German army of World War One did something similar to the Assyrian army. They're both prototypes. The Assyrian army is the prototype for ancient warfare, while the German World War I army is the prototype for modern warfare. People always talk about German efficiency, German productivity, German attention to detail, and that aspect of the German personality was really epitomized in World War I. These guys had everything down to a science. They knew exactly how many men were being deployed, how many rail cars it would take to take them to their destination, how many axles were going to pass over this specific bridge at this specific time. Long story short, Germany had millions of armed soldiers during the First World War, and it knew exactly how much time it needed to get them to where they needed to be, how many supplies it was needed to keep that soldier operational, and how exactly to get those supplies to them. This was an exceedingly complicated task, and a task that no nation in history had even attempted, yet the Germans accomplished it with ease, grace, and efficiency. A task that they couldn't even replicate the second time in World War II. The efficiency of the German army would never exceed this point in time. But that's not the only reason I choose the German army of World War I over the German army of World War II. There are two more reasons. First, the German army of World War I had far more staying and fighting power than the German army of World War II. There's a point after 1942 in which World War II becomes inevitable. It's clear the Germans are going to lose. The only question is... How long will it take to defeat them? In World War I, the German army was scoring tremendous victories right up until the point where they suddenly collapsed. For example, in very short order, they would be able to conquer the entirety of the Balkans. In 1917, they would defeat the Russian Empire and deliver an absolutely crushing blow to Italy. And this triple threat made it seem like the Allies were done for, that the Central Powers had won the war. The only thing that ended up saving them, really, was the entrance of America into the war. But even then, the Germans would launch the Kaiserschlag, an offensive set at ending the war in the West, and they came within a stone's throw of doing it. So if you're able to compare these wars to a movie, maybe, 
World War One is a real nail-biting movie with twists and turns, with victories and defeats on both sides, and you don't know who's going to win up until the very end. Where, as in World War II, you already know who's going to be the victor by the time the movie's halfway over. And all you're doing is watching the victorious overcome the vanquished. And part of the reason why Germany was able to be so successful, even late in the war, despite losing millions upon millions of men, is because they were a better army than the German army of World War II. The German army of World War II was only able to deliver punches, yet the German army of World War I could deliver them and take them in equal measure. The second reason why I think the German army of World War I is better than the German army of World War II is because Germany was united in that time period. The main difference is that German Jews, who made up approximately 1% of the population during World War I, contributed over and above what they were asked to. German Jews were active contributors to the war effort in Germany. And not just active, but enthusiastic. And without them, Germany would have lost the war very quickly. To show you what I mean, we have to look at a German-Jewish scientist named Fitzhaber. Fitzhaber won the Nobel Prize for inventing a process called the Haber process. And this process essentially creates artificial nitrogen from the air. And this was a monumental discovery at the time because it allowed for the quick and easy production of ammonia. And ammonia is used very predominantly in food substitutes, in fertilizers, in pharmaceuticals. And without this invention, Germany would have starved very quickly under the pressure of Britain's naval blockade of Germany. Unfortunately, Harbour's reputation would be tarnished because during the war, he would go on to become one of Germany's top chemical scientists. And this wasn't like something he was forced to do. He joined the German military very enthusiastically and would be instrumental in creating some of the horrific chemical gases that Germany used in World War I. And in an extremely depressing turn of fate that would be used by the Germans in World War II against his own people. Another great historical irony here is that during World War I, Hitler fought on the German side and would actually be awarded an extremely prestigious award, especially given his low rank in the army. That award being the Iron Cross First Class. And the officer who recommended Hitler for this medal turned out to be a Jewish German officer. So this active participation by all members of the population made the German army of World War I stronger than the German army of World War II. But the reason why it deserves to be on this list is because it was the only army that could even somewhat break the rules of World War I. World War I being equated with the tragic and senseless throwing away of soldiers' lives on offensives that gained very little. However, it was very rarely the Germans who would be thrown into these offensives. Rather, it was the Allies throwing themselves at the Germans. The Germans understood the power of defensive warfare, especially on the West, 
and committed most of their offensives to other theaters of war, particularly the East. The one major exception to this rule would be the Battle of Verdun. But even then, it proves what I mean. The Battle of Verdun, initiated by General Falkenheim, was meant to use the powers of the defense against the French. He sought out to capture a small portion of this fantastic and very nationally important sequence of forts at Verdun and coax the French into attacking his emplacements, and thus, as General Falkenheim put it, bleeding them white. Unfortunately, though, the battle got away from General Falkenheim, and a lot of his lower generals didn't understand the purpose of the battle and continued to assault even though that wasn't their intended goal. At the end, though, the Battle of Verdun remains the only battle in World War I in which the attacking side took less casualties than the defending side. And that, to me, is really emblematic of what a great army this was. As well, the Germans have what many historians consider to be the only great victory of World War I, and that is the Battle of Tannenberg. And this battle took place very early in the war, and it was against the invading Russians who were trying to capture portions of East Germany. Despite the fact the Germans left only a token force to defend their eastern half, hoping to knock France out of the war quickly and early and then focusing on the Russians, this token force still managed to deliver a crushing blow to the Russian forces and remove them from eastern Germany, where this force was only meant to be a slight delay for the Russian colossus. Yet it wins a crushing victory. As well as they were able to easily conquer and defeat the Balkan states of Serbia and Romania, and actively assist their allies in both Austro-Hungary and Turkey in a variety of battles. Ultimately, the German army of World War I was everywhere doing everything you could imagine an army doing and doing it with complete efficiency and success. And to me, that definitely deserves you the third highest spot on our list of top 10 armies of all time. Number two is one of those picks I'm sure most of you knew would show up on the list eventually. They are an absolute classic, if you will, in terms of military history, and judging by how much we talk about this time period on the podcast, they were obviously going to show up at some point. So claiming our second highest spot on our top ten armies of all time list will be the Roman army. But as I alluded to at the start of the podcast, I didn't just want to put the Roman army throughout its entire almost millennia-long history. Because over this time period, the Roman army would undergo multitudes of reforms. And a Roman army from 200 BC is not the same as a Roman army from 300 AD. And this is part of the reason why the Romans enjoyed such a long 
and prosperous time as top dogs in military technology because they were always willing to perform, adapt, and change their army based on the new threats that they were encountering at the time. But I had to choose one period to put on this list, and this really amounted to choosing the best of the best. Ultimately, I decided I would give the nod to the army of the Middle Republic era, and this is the era right after the Second Punic War. So let me set the stage for this time period a little bit. This was the period in which Rome was coming right off the Second Punic War, and the Second Punic War was Rome's great existential struggle. It was their baptism by fire, and they would come out of this baptism by fire with the best army the world had ever seen up till that point. So for those of you who don't know, the Second Punic War is the great war between Rome and Carthage. And this was the war in which Hannibal was a huge factor. This was the war that he crossed the Alps, that he defeated the Romans at Lake Trasimene, and utterly crushed them at the Battle of Cannae. And all these battles were happening right in Rome's backyard. And these crushing defeats would have been enough to make any other state at the time capitulate, but Rome was determined to win. And they weren't going to give up until they saw their entire city in ruins. Eventually, the Romans would be able to bottle up Hannibal and eliminate him as an effective threat, even though he was still in Italy. Rome would take to the offensive in other theaters of the war, particularly the Spanish theater, under the brilliant leadership of their general Scipio. And Scipio would defeat the Carthaginians in Spain and then ultimately get the command to attack them in North Africa. At the famous Battle of Zema, Hannibal would be recalled from Italy, and these two great generals would face off head-to-head, resulting in a decisive Roman victory. Right after this victory, Rome would gain huge tracts of land, particularly in North Africa and Spain. This war had forged a world-class army, and Rome's new territories gave it the resources needed to create a world-class empire. So the Romans weren't done after the Second Punic War. They still had a loose end to tie up, and that was the problem of the Kingdom of Macedonia, who had allied with Hannibal, but ended up being a very minor force in the war, as they didn't actually send any troops to help poor Hannibal. Even though they didn't send any troops, the Romans weren't going to let the Macedonians get off scot-free. The Romans would instead invade the Greek kingdom and, under a series of wars, would eventually conquer and annex it. The most decisive battle between these two ancient powers was the Battle of Kynocephali. And interestingly enough, Kynocephali means the dog's head, and its name refers to a distinct geological feature that dominated the battlefield that looked like a dog's head. Anyway, this battle would pit the Macedonian fighting style of Alexander the Great against the new fighting style of the Roman Republic. So we talked a bit about Alexander's fighting style. Let's talk a bit about the Roman fighting style. So the Romans fought in a very distinctive formation at this time. They would have sort of a three-layered formation. 
on the first line would be the medium infantry. These guys were called the Hestadi, and they would be armed with that very large distinctive Roman shield. As well, they would have a stabbing short sword called the Gladius, along with two javelins called Pelums. The Hastati themselves were made up of the young men of the Roman Republic. Behind these young men would be the middle-aged men, the seasoned men, and these would be called the Principe. And the Principe would be armed in the same way as the Hastati, however, they would have thicker and more advanced armor. Behind them is the older generation of Romans, and these are called the Triarii. And these gentlemen would be armed with spears, and they would only be used, really, if the battle was going south. They would lock together in a hedgehog formation and cover the retreat of their fellow soldiers. There's one more component we need to throw into this Roman army, and that's how it was organized. The main organizational unit of this Roman army was called the Manipole, and this was a segment of a couple hundred men who could be given orders individually. So, for example, you could order a manipole to exploit a gap in the line, or to fall back and move around an enemy position. And this gave the Roman army a great deal of flexibility, especially when you compare it to that Macedonian phalanx, who we mentioned the great flaw of which was their inability to respond to changes on the battlefield, especially if this formation was flanked. There were two final components to this Roman army. There was a cavalry component, usually made up of Roman allies, and then finally a light infantry component, men who would carry javelins or slings and be lightly armored. And their whole purpose was to run forward and disrupt the enemy before they actually came into contact with the main army. So this battle of Kynocephali would settle the question of which type of warfare was dominant, this Eastern Greek style of warfare or the Western Roman style of warfare. And Roman training, as well as their flexibility, would allow them to achieve a decisive victory at Kynocephali, as the Romans were able to use this flexible maniple system to break off a maniple and exploit a gap in the Macedonian line, and then after that, the entirety of the Macedonian force would fall apart. In very short order, Rome would conquer all of Greece and then would set its sights on that Seleucid Empire, another empire we talked about during the time of Alexander the Great. And the Seleucid Empire was the most powerful and massive empire of the time, and the Romans came in and destroyed it easily, and I mean completely crushing these armies I mean absolute blowout victories. When you go and look at the casualty figures for these battles, they'll read something like 30,000 Seleucid dead and the Romans lost 150 guys. So in very short order, Rome would prove its dominance over the Carthaginian army as well as the powerful Eastern empires founded by Alexander the Great's generals. It would be at this point that the Roman army would prove itself the best in the world. They had achieved the title of the greatest army in the ancient world, and they wouldn't relinquish it for another 500 years. And that, to me, is why the Roman army after the Second Punic War gets the nod as the best army of the entirety of the Roman Empire's history. 
because they marked the point in which Rome achieved her military dominance over the Western world. This would also represent the period of fastest expansion of the Roman Empire. So after taking Spain, Greece, and large chunks of modern-day Turkey and the Middle East, it would be this army which won the Romans the military stature that they enjoy in history. And that to me is why it's the second greatest army of all time. Before we get to number one, I want to make one honorable mention. And this honorable mention goes out to a country which unfortunately didn't get the time it deserves on this list. And this was mainly due to the way I designed the criteria. Because I wasn't taking navies into account, this excluded one great power from being heavily considered on the list. So I would like to take some time to give an honorable mention to the British Navy. And if I'm going to choose a time in which the British Navy was at their peak, it would probably be just after the Napoleonic era and just before the 20th century. So I guess that Victorian age of exploration and colonial expansion. And the British Navy was really the glue that held together their massive empire. It wasn't their army. In fact, the British army was pretty tiny. There's a famous remark by the German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, who when asked, oh, if we declare war in Britain, they might use this fabulous navy to come and deploy troops onto Germany. And Otto von Bismarck responded by saying, if they do that, I'll have them arrested. Obviously, not taking the British army that seriously, but the British navy is a far different story. And I think, unquestionably, the British Navy is the best Navy of all time. Especially during this Victorian era, the British Navy would never come close to having a decisive victory scored against it. And this might have had something to do with the fact that they had single-handedly destroyed both the Spanish and French Navy combined just before this period. The British Navy would then go on to foster the creation of international trade lanes. And this would lay the groundwork for the global economy that we have today. The British were also very adept at enhancing their navy and bettering its technological prowess. As they would be among the first to incorporate steamships and armored ironclad vessels. And this technological advancement would again have a huge impact on globalizing the world as naval vessels using steam transportation would be far faster and more reliable than their sailed counterparts. It would turn what otherwise might be a very dangerous journey to North America or India into a relatively peaceful one. The only disadvantage that these steamships would have is that they would get extremely hot so for example when they would have steam transports travel down the nile they would switch sides that the passengers would sleep on when going up the nile and coming down the nile and this was to ensure that the passengers could be blocked from the intense egyptian sun so while the british army unfortunately doesn't get a place on this list as it was too small 
And when it was fighting other powers, they were generally weaker colonial powers. But its navy existed on a whole different plane of reality. And I wanted to take a brief moment to give it its due, especially when we're talking about all these great empires and militaries and technological advancements. It would just be sad to have left out the British Navy in our discussion. The big moment has finally arrived. We've reached the last number on our list and are about to crown the best army of all time. And while drafting this list, I gotta say, choosing the number one spot was probably the easiest choice of them all. And that's because I don't think any way you slice it, any criteria you draft, you cannot avoid putting this army as the number one spot. This army broke all the rules of military warfare and continues to confound historians to this day. They were unstoppable, brutal, and endlessly fascinating. The number one army of all time proudly goes to the Mongol army of Genghis Khan. And if I were to sum up the army of Genghis Khan, I would use this metaphor. The Mongols existed in a time where it was like there was only one Major League Baseball team in the entire world, and it was them. While every other baseball team in the world was double A or lower. So if you can imagine the slaughter that would ensue in an athletic sense when a Major League Baseball team faces off against a double A baseball team, then you can get a picture of the military dominance enjoyed by the Mongolians. Let's take a step back for a second here and discuss Genghis Khan and his army. Genghis Khan, born as Temujin in 1162, endured what is probably the worst childhood of all time, being raised primarily by his mother in the vast Mongolian steppes, Temujin was subject to frequent enemy raids, being captured consistently by other tribes, and would even kill his own brother to establish his dominance among his family and also spare their family precious resources. Yet coming from absolute squalor, through sheer force of will, Temujin would unite the disparate Mongol tribes that existed at this time. So, during his childhood, being subjected to this swirling, almost civil war that was going on between these Mongol tribes, none of whom had the dominance to subjugate any other, when Temujin would get his chance at leader, he would unite these tribes and instill a strict rule of law. This rule of law would take this powerful but ununited group of Mongol warriors and turn them into the most disciplined and effective military force the world had ever seen. In very short order, after uniting the Mongol tribes, Temujin would be given his famous title of Genghis Khan, or the Great Khan, and at his coronation, he would be declared the ruler of all those who live in felt tents. So, after his coronation, 
Genghis Khan would then go and unite all these other nomadic tribes that shared a similar culture to the Mongolians. After succeeding in this task, he had a core of powerful cavalry warriors that he could then unleash on the rest of the world. After uniting these desperate tribes, Genghis Khan would go on to rage war against the Western Shia dynasty, and it would be during this campaign that the Mongols would learn the art of siege warfare, something that these powerful nomadic tribes had lacked up until this point. Because the Chinese and Europeans had been dealing with these nomadic steppe archers for millennia, and usually what they would do is just go behind their city or castle walls and wait it out, because these tribes didn't have the technological means to capture these powerful fortifications. The Mongols, on the other hand, would learn that art very quickly, and after subjugating the Shia dynasty, they would go up against the powerful Jin dynasty. And this was one of those moments in history that if you were a betting person, betting on the Mongols in this war would seem like the dumbest move in the world. The Jin army outnumbered the Mongolian army by many times as well as they had among the most advanced and sophisticated militaries that would exist in the world of the 13th century. However, using their advanced organizational techniques, their powerful cavalry archers, and now subsidized by the engineers and forces of his vassal, the Shia dynasty, the Jin dynasty was completely crushed by the Mongols, massacring hundreds of thousands of Jin troops in a series of decisive battles, ultimately culminating in the siege of Zongdu, which is now modern-day Beijing, probably the largest city in the world at this time. The Mongols would capture this city and, of course, sack it, killing hundreds of thousands of people. The Jin dynasty collapsed and... Genghis Khan seemed like he was pretty happy with his military conquests, but he wasn't done yet, as he would be intentionally provoked into a war by one of his neighbors, specifically an Islamic kingdom called the Khwarezmian Shah. And the Khwarezmian Shah held under his control another powerful empire, and we talked about some of the Islamic armies earlier in the podcast, so you can imagine that the Charisman Shah was hardly considered a slouch in the military department. However, when these two great powers went to war, the Mongols would quickly and easily defeat the Charisman Shah. The Shah thinking that if he deployed his troops onto the battlefield, they would be crushed by the mobile Mongol army. So, he instead distributed his army across all his great cities and hoped to hold these major population centers, not taking into account the fact that the Mongols now had sophisticated Chinese sappers in their army as well as were starting to use the beginnings of gunpowder. So one by one, these cities were surrounded and taken by the Mongol armies. The last conquest of Genghis Khan's life was against the Shia dynasty, who defied him when he went to war with the Khwarezmian Shah. Once he was done with the Islamic armies, 
Genghis Khan would come on back and settle the score with the Shia dynasty who is supported by the remnants of the Jin dynasty. Of course, this newfound resurgent force was crushed and Genghis Khan would leave his now powerful empire to his successors who would continue to expand and grow the empire through a series of decisive conquests. So that was the whirlwind tour of Genghis Khan's life. But what exactly made this Mongol army so effective? Well, we talked about the rule of law. So these Mongol troops were extraordinarily disciplined, along with being honed soldiers, having spent their entire lives growing up in the harsh environment of the Mongol steppes. The Mongol army was also led by some of the best generals, perhaps the best generals of all time. Genghis Khan had a knack for spotting out talent amongst the enemies, and he would often bring on enemy generals to command his forces if he thought they were good enough. Not only would he do this with his steppe counterparts, but he would also do it with Chinese generals as well. And this is something that would help contribute to his victories in China as many Chinese generals, when they saw the war was turning against them, simply appealed to Genghis Khan to let them in. So this policy of meritocracy ensured that the Mongol army was always led by the people who were most qualified to lead it. They also operated under a sophisticated decimal system, starting with one soldier and then the next group would be 10 soldiers, and then 100 soldiers, and then 1,000 soldiers, and then finally a group of 10,000 soldiers. And this would help give the Mongol army flexibility, as well as a clear path for career progression. So a typical Mongol army of this period would be made up almost entirely of cavalry. And this would be a mix of cavalry archers, as well as heavier cavalry for charging and running down enemies. Mongol troops would also have multiple horses, and these horses would provide them not just with transportation, but also food as well. Coming from very harsh climates, the Mongols knew how to live off the land in even the most inhospitable climates. For example, when the Mongol soldiers would need food, all they would do was take some of the milk from their mares, their horses, cut open a little slice in the horse, mix some blood in with that milk, and you would have a probably really nasty tasting concoction, but it would give you all the essential minerals and vitamins you needed to survive. So when you combine this speed with the fact that Mongol armies needed almost nothing to live off the land, you would have the most versatile fighting force in the ancient world. It was able to move fast and cross terrain that most armies wouldn't even consider venturing into. Then, when you combine this speed and maneuverability with the fact that they were led by some of the best generals of all time, the Mongols could fashion extremely sophisticated battle plans. For example, most ancient armies would just kind of move forward in a large block towards their objective. But the Mongols would break up their armies under this decimal system and send them in multiple different directions. So rather than having an army of a 100,000 men coming at you from one direction, you would have 10 armies 
of 10,000 men coming at you from all directions. And this gave the Mongols a large amount of strategic flexibility, but also drilled the impression into their enemies that the Mongols were everywhere at all times. And then lastly, you combine that with the carrot and stick style of governing that the Mongols enforced. Basically, they had a policy of, if you surrender, we'll let you live. If you don't, we're going to kill every single last one of you. And this was effective at encouraging enemies to capitulate when they otherwise might have fought. So let me wrap this up with a few key points as to why the Mongols are the number one army of all time. First, they created the largest continuous empire of all time. Meaning that while the British Empire was technically larger in terms of landmass, it wasn't all connected together in one large empire like the Mongol Empire was. Secondly, no other army in history has fought the varied types of forces that the Mongols have and crushed them so completely and utterly that Mongols would fight Chinese infantry, Japanese samurai, Islamic cavalry, European armored knights, even the poor tribesmen of the Java island armed only with a blowgun would come to grips with the Mongols and the Mongols would defeat every single one and easily. But the last reason I think the Mongols are the best army of all time is because only one nation in the world holds the title of being able to completely invade and subjugate Russia. And that is the Mongol Empire. And not only that, they did it during the winter. And that brings us to the end of our top 10 armies of all time list. I certainly hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. Unfortunately, due to the length of this presentation, there isn't going to be a listener submission segment to the show. Instead, next week, we will be returning to form with an argument episode. However, what I'm hoping to do is early next week release a smaller and potentially rougher version of the podcast where I get to take some time to answer a few submissions as well as talk about all the crazy things that have been happening politically in the world. So tune in early next week where we'll talk about the Irish general election as well as the state of the current presidential primaries. Finally, I'll be revealing the topic for the next episode in that little update. Lastly, I would encourage you, if you want to support the podcast, please go to www.npupodcast.com, click on our support page, and there you'll have a variety of methods that you can choose to support the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for Naples Ultra, please send them to my email, which is spencer at npupodcast.com, or hit me up on Twitter, which is at npupodcast. This has been Naples Ultra, signing off, and until next time, you guys take care. <laughs>